This is the Washington State Wire podcast, a podcast on the policy, politics, and economics of Washington State. Here's your host, DJ Wilson. There are few figures in Washington State political history, really in Washington State civic history, as important, as consequential, and really as smart as former U.S. Senator Slade Gordon. He served as a House member in the Republican caucus in the legislature, rising to majority leader there, and played a consequential role in some of the 1960 legislation related to redistricting, but also some of the other big conversations of that decade. In 1968, he was elected statewide as attorney general, a position he held until 1980 when he defeated longtime Washington State incumbent Warren Magnuson for the United States Senate. He went on to serve a number of terms, three actually, from 1980 to 86. Took a little time off because of a defeat, but then was reelected in 1988 till 2000. Following that, he served as a commissioner on the 9-11 Commission. And in 2010, among other things, he was a redistricting commission member as a representative from the Washington State Senate. As part of our series examining redistricting in Washington State, we wanted to sit down with one of the most important and most consequential people in redistricting in Washington State, that being Senator Gordon. He came in to office as a result of redistricting. He was involved in the 63 and 65 redistricting political battles. He helped write a 1970 attorney general opinion that was the underpinning of state law for some time. And then, as he said, he talked to a few people in the lead up to the 1983 constitutional amendment that created our present day redistricting commission. He calls it the best redistricting effort in the country. And we spend quite a deal of time talking with him in this podcast about what that was like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and up to present day. So without further ado, let's dig right into this conversation with former U.S. Senator Slade Gordon on redistricting in Washington State. Former U.S. Senator Slade Gordon, thank you very much for making time to talk about redistricting. I'm happy to do so. Yeah. So one of the reasons we wanted to reach out to you is... You've been involved in formal ways with redistricting since you began your career uh, back in, in also in 2010 as a private citizen. I also think that you were probably involved in an informal way uh, in a number of instances uh, that I don't yet know about, like supporting the 1983 Constitutional Amendment. And I really am just excited as a student of history to pick your brain on some of this stuff. If you would... Well, I can say that... Uh... My career was started by redistricting. There was the first redistricting in many, many years in the, in the state of Washington in 1956 by initiative sponsored by the League of Women Voters. Bob Grieve, the, the Democratic leader of the Senate, hated the lines in that redistricting bill. And in the 1957 session, uh, he spearheaded a rewrite of it for which he got significant Republican support, though it turned out to be a total Democratic uh, gerrymander. But that total Democratic gerrymander created a district where I lived with no incumbents hmm. in the State House of Representatives and was one of the encouraging factors in causing me to run for the first time in 1958. Interesting. So tell me about that 1956 initiative by the League of Women Voters. 
Was the 1956 effort the first real effort? I know there was a 1901 statute, but was that 56 initiative the first time? I think there was a 1931 statute. Really? But nothing, the, the legislature rarely abided by the state constitutional requirement for redistricting. And when it did redistrict, it didn't pay any attention or very little attention uh, to population equality. Mm -hmm. So it should be said appropriately that the 1956 League of Women Voters Initiative was the first time that the constitutional requirements of equal population uh, were major factors in the line drawing by the League. Mm -hmm. They did it that way, and they did it that way by describing districts by their census district tracts rather than by precincts, which was one of the things that uh, Senator Grieve later used against them because the county auditors would have to work so hard in redrawing precincts. Mm -hmm. Senator Grieve, uh, uh, Democratic leader, seems like he may have been one of the more informed people on redistricting in Washington State legislative oh, politics. In, 19, in the 1957 session, he certainly knew more about the subject than any other single member. Yeah. Probably any, any other 10 members combined. And uh, I, I read in John C. Hughes' book about you, your biography, Slade Gorton, A Half Century in Politics, that you were his sort of kind of the biggest thorn in his side is that when you arrived. He <laughs> once said when we were in a big debate over redistricting, Gorton, he said, you should be a professor of politics at a small eastern college. Far away from Washington <laughs> State, right? <laughs> so how did you do redistricting in those days? Let me Actually, before I ask that, let me preface by say, saying uh, you came in in the, the class of 59 following the 1958 election, as you said. There was, I believe, a court order that directed the legislature to to come up with some rational uh, proportionality or rational plan. The 1963 legislature was under a court order to mm -hmm. do something. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do much, but I believe that had some, you tried to do a lot, but didn't well, that result we in the... back up on <clears throat> that a little. In, uh, during the 1962 uh, election campaigns for members of the legislature, it was known that redistricting would, was a priority in 1963. And that election ended up with a very close division you know, between, between the two houses. Mm -hmm. I think it was 51 to 48 Democratic. But Republican candidates had gotten a majority of the vote. It showed the degree of gerrymandering the existing system had. But that was the year, 1963, uh, that there was a revolt. Uh, seven Democrats, you know, left the reservation, refused to vote for John O'Brien as speaker, and after and on the third ballot for speaker, uh, one of them, Big Daddy Day, a chiropractor from Spokane, was elected speaker of, of the House. Our rationale as Republicans for getting into that uh, uh, coalition was largely based on redistricting to try to protect ourselves from another gerrymander. Mm -hmm. And so one of the prices that uh, the, those seven willingly paid uh, was that I would be the chairman of the Committee on Elections and would be the point person for a redistricting. Uh, and uh, we hardly expected that we would get something through 
that advantaged us, that even made it even. Al Rosalini was governor. Uh, the Senate under Grieve was heavily Democratic. Uh, the House had this narrow coalition that kind of majority. But we did know that we could keep ourselves from being gerrymandered out of our seats. And I think on two or three occasions, we debated and passed bills through the House that redistributed the state. Mm -hmm. I had the high ground. I had the high ground because to get it dead even was a triumph for our side. Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't trying to get a tremendous Republican advantage. There was no way we could possibly do that. But if we could get it even, we'd be fine. But neither, none of the House bills had any chance in the Senate, and none of the Senate bills passed by Grieve had any chance in the House. So we ended the 1963 session with no accomplishment with respect to redistricting whatsoever, except for the subjective accomplishment of the Republicans' part is they didn't come out worse than they went in. Yeah. It's such an interesting story about the 1963 uh legislature in this Hughes book about you all pulling a few Democrats over, effectively ending the speakership of John L. O'Brien. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, I think, majority leader for a time afterwards, but uh, was no longer speaker. He wasn't majority leader. He was the leader then of the Democratic minority because the seven had left him. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a majority coalition caucus, you know, of a different we kind. We didn't call it that, but that's what it was. Yeah, that's right. Um, th this is one of these things that doesn't come out very often when we talk about redistricting in a public way. But in the book, it talks about figures like Jack Dutson and of Everett, uh, a, a Democratic member, figures like Senator Bob Grieve in the Senate, people he wanted to protect. How did you, part of the horse trading that was going on in that 63 session and and ultimately is trying to figure out who is with you and who, who, who you might be able to protect and who you might not be able to protect. There weren't very many loose votes in the House in 1963. Uh, the Republican members were always going to vote for the Republican bill. Mm -hmm. The Democratic members for the Democratic bill. The coalition members with us as Republicans because, of course, I was very careful to draw the lines that were pleasing to them. To and those seven Democrats name, who came over. You mentioned the name Jack Dutson. He was the only loose vote out of 99 members of the House. He was not a member of the coalition. He had not voted against John O'Brien for Speaker. But uh, he was a remarkable man. And he stood up in, the, in, in the, those debates, which are as harsh partisan debates as you'll ever come up with. And he would say, I've examined the Senate bill and uh, Representative Gordon's bill here in the House, and I believe that Representative Gordon's bill is more fair uh, than the Democratic uh, proposal here, and therefore I'm going to vote for it. As of 99 members, he was the only one who made up his mind in exactly that fashion. He was correct for reasons that I've already outlined to you, ours was more fair. But he probably made the Democrats, the regular Democrats, more angry than the coalition members did yeah. you know, for leaving the party on that issue. And he lost his seat? Not then. But shortly thereafter, no, as a result, he, wasn't he? He was, we, remember, we didn't redistrict in That's 1963. True, right. So That's in true. 1964, he was elected again. Uh -huh. He was with us during the 1965 session when we did succeed. 
and, and lost at sea. Yeah. And there's a story to that too. So, so I want you to tell it first. I want to hear, well, not hear, but set the stage that 1964 of the, the sort of three young, uh, informed and educated men who came into the Republican Party. Dan Evans becomes uh, the elected governor, first of three terms in 1964, sort of bucking a little bit of a national trend. So you head into that 19... 19- big, <laughs> big national trend, right? November 22nd, 1963, John Kennedy had been assassinated. LBJ uh, rode a wave into the White House of, of many Democrats, but not the governor's mansion in Washington state. Uh, that 65 session becomes very important when it comes to uh, redistricting. Central. C- central to it. Because in 1964, of course, as you said... Uh, Goldwater was slaughtered in the presidential election. Uh, <coughs> Johnson won easily. And, of course, we lost significantly. There could no longer be a coalition. I think there were only something like maybe 41 Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the coalition members survived. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't lose at all. But there was no ability to create the kind of coalition that we had had before. Senator Grieve was very intelligent and uh, read well, and Senator Grieve saw that the state constitution said that the legislature would convene on a given Monday in January, that the new statewide offices, including the governor, were sworn in on Wednesday, 48 hours later. And so Senator Grieve figured he had 48 hours in which to get his uh, Democratic gerrymander through the con- through the legislature and onto the governor's desk. Before Governor Evans Before assumes Governor office. Before Governor Evans assumed office. And he had it, his bill passed by 2 o'clock on that Monday afternoon <laughs> in, in the House, mm-hmm. in the Senate. Uh, the House was kept in session all night on Monday night. Uh, and uh, the coalition members had been expelled from the Democratic caucus, so they continued to vote with us. That was a mistake the Democrats you know, made in the House. Jack Dutson was voting for us on principle, mm-hmm. uh, and I think there was one other who somehow or another, even the Grieve uh, uh, lines had, uh, had had drawn out. But the Democrats <coughs> could not get quite to that 50th vote to pass a bill. So we also read the state constitution, mm-hmm. and the state constitution just said on that particular Wednesday, the governor would be sworn in in the chambers of the House of Representatives. So we called Richard Ott. Richard Ott was a Supreme Court justice. He had been the Republican leader in the legislature in 1933 when there were six Republican members of the House in wow. 1999. Uh, and we said, uh, uh, Justice, would you like to swear Dan Evans in as governor in the gallery of the House at one minute after midnight? I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Now, that leaked about 9 o'clock at night, the fact that we had that coming up leaked, and the Democrats threw in the towel uh-huh. and, and adjourned and allowed a regular swearing in the, the next day. Now, during, during that uh, 1965 session, uh, the Democrats, I think on two different occasions, actually did pass a bill and send it to the governor, which was promptly vetoed and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, sent back. In fact, the, the uh, Democrats began to call Dan Evans Danny Vito. and finally the dam was broken by Senator Grieve in effect saying to me 
okay, Slade, you get what you want, but I determine which Democrats lose. Grieve was the majority in the Senate for many years, but he was always a faction leader. There was always a group of Democratic senators who didn't like him and uh, didn't follow him at all. And so he proceeded to get rid of as many of those as he possibly could. Mm -hmm. uh, we had, uh, Pierce County then had five districts. It was going to continue to have five districts. All five had Democratic senators. And my irreducible demand was there was going to be one Republican district in, in Pierce County built around the city of Lakewood. Okay, Greaves said, you can have it as long as Rasmussen is in it. Rasmussen was the senator he hated. Rasmussen lived in the heart of the most democratic part of the city of Tacoma. So one night we stood there and we drew a line along, I think it was South 38th Street. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, right there, <laughs> down to South 39th and then all the way back. And Rasmussen lived right at the tip of that. It was called the Rasmussen Finger, uh -huh. uh, which is uh, which is what it was, and which got it rid of Rasmussen. Rasmussen, however, ended up having a last laugh. He was elected mayor of Tacoma, and then later, after the next redistricting, came back to the state senate. That is a great story, the Rasmussen Finger. Jeez, I uh, I guess I, I got to just tell you, I'm a little bit in awe of the specific, I mean, you're well known for having a great memory. You're well known for knowing these details, but it is pretty cool to hear you chart by. You don't forget instances like <laughs> Up 39th crossover. <laughs> um, so how much did that thinking about specific members I mean, you said it entered into Senator Greaves' thinking. How much did that enter into the overall calculus? I guess at the time, you still had a, a relatively small Republican minority caucus. But were Democrats in the House thinking that way about specific members? Or were they thinking about— Democrats in the House were climbing the walls because they had nothing to say. Even though they were a majority— they basically didn't have anything to say about it. It was between between Senator uh, Grieve and, and me. And I guess the differences between us and the comment about the small Eastern College stemmed from the fact that Senator Grieve called every district by its incumbent senator's name. Hmm. They were the Grieve district or the Ryder district or whatever it was. I called them by their numbers. We talked past one another, you know, for most of that, the 47 days that it took to redistrict, to redistrict there. That didn't mean that I wasn't concerned with incumbents. I was, I had to be. But I was concerned with creating a situation where if we got a majority of the votes, we get a majority of the, of, of the House members. Yeah. Grieve was concerned about state senators who were in his clique. I had recognized that. We, we were not going to get lines which greatly disadvantaged any one of them by any means. But because Senate district and House district were the same, that protected a lot of Democratic House members as well. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have anything to do with drawing those lines. Grieve did that. And as you say, it feels like, I mean, obviously I wasn't there. This happened before I was born. But it feels like you had sort of the moral authority of being able to say the party that wins a majority of the votes should have a majority of the seats in the House, or at least the House, but yeah, also that, the Senate. That, 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 it's, that it's got to be more fair. 
And as I say, there was one member, both in 63 and 65, who, for whom that was the key argument, and that was Jack Dudson. I must say, he's perhaps the most memorable individual in politics uh, to me of anyone I've known in a, in a long, long career. And his was the last issue decided in that redistricting. We were protecting Dutson, and the last 24 or 48 hours went by when we had not settled how his district would be divided up. He called me and said, I've really got to see you and Governor Evans. He and I went down to the governor's office uh, and, and Representative Dutson said, I've been told, I understand, that you're holding up redistricting on my account. And I think I said, damn right we are, Jack, and we're going to keep on doing it until, you, you know, you've been with us, we're with you. Oh, he said, I am so disappointed in you. I have admired you and, and Governor Evans almost more than anyone else in the legislature, and that you would, you would hold up the people's business over me is, is, is terribly disappointing. I'm not sure I can support you any longer. Well, we had to give up and, 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 and sell him out. Yeah. He was a Democrat. He was a Democrat. Yeah. But he was with us, and, and uh, uh, we were not going to let them arbitrarily get rid of him. All Grieve had said was, I determine which Democratic senators lose. Yeah. He hadn't made, he hadn't put uh, Dutson into that, uh, that, that, that category. But uh, when Dutson didn't want us to do it anymore, we didn't do it anymore. Yeah. Such a powerful story. The yeah. last time I ever met Jack Dutson was many years later when I was a United States senator and he was picketing my Senate office against aid to the Contras. Uh-huh. So he is true to his principles from start to finish, it sounds from like. From start to finish. Yeah. So you become majority leader for a short time following the 66 elections. You become attorney general in 1968. Uh as Governor Evans is reelected to another term to, uh, to governor. But the key thing that happened after, you know, I left the legislature and uh, you know, before my Senate career was over and I became a redistricting commissioner was the creation of the redistricting commission. The 1970 census, as I remember, uh, created a lot of controversy that wasn't just between the two parties, but finally got finally got done in the 19 after the 1980 census. I believe Governor Spellman actually vetoed a Republican redistricting bill for Congress, uh, and the cumulative effect of that history in the 60s and the 70s and the early 80s were what caused the legislature to send a constitutional amendment to the people taking the job away from the legislature and creating our redistricting commission. Mm -hmm. And that was a magnificent triumph of good government. No person should be judged in his or her own case. Mm -hmm. uh, it ought to be done more objectively uh, than that. And to remove it from the legislature and to have an objective, bipartisan usually, a system of drawing those uh, district lines is the improvement that has taken place gradually in, in a number of states. I don't think it covers half the states yet, but it's close to it, and that I hope will, uh, will be the future of redistricting. Uh, because once you've done that, 
you have largely ended the possibility of political gerrymandering mm -hmm. if actually the redistricting commission in any state is properly constituted. That's the secret to it. That's the reason that Washington State has the best redistricting system in the United States of America. Not one of the best, the very best. We rank number one because most of the redistricting commissions start with the appointment of an equal number of members of the Democratic and Republican parties. Very frequently, they pick a chairman. And under those circumstances, the two party, the party representatives argue for the vote of the chairman. You know, they're still opposed to, to, to one another. And someone still very likely ends up a winning, a winner and a loser. Not the way you do in a one-party legislature by any means, uh, but, uh, but there are winners and losers. The genius of the Washington system is that the four appointees of the four caucuses in the two houses pick a chairman, mm -hmm. but the chairman has no vote. The chairman is, is, is an administrator and administrator only. So the two part, the party representatives must talk to one another and must come to an agreement to, with one another to have redistricting take place. And the result of that is that with one minor exception in this last time around, we don't have years and years of litigation after the redistricting is over. Uh, when it's done, uh, the, the people who wrote that constitutional amendment did a very, very good job. It always gets done right at the end, whatever the deadline date is, and you always make clerical mistakes. You know, particular census tracts or precincts are, you know, are misnamed or misnumbered. So the legislature has something like 60 days in which to pass a corrective bill by a two-thirds majority of both houses. And the county election officers and the redistricting commission come up with the errors they've made and make suggested changes. They always pass. And then the lines are the lines. No one challenges them after that. Yeah, so three of the four voting members have to agree. Yeah, but four of the four have to agree. Yeah. You're, you're never going to have a split between the two members of the same party. So, so the, the, the law is three out of four have to agree, but it's four out of four, in fact. So what role in that 2010 redistricting commission that you were a part of I'm sure you'll tell me otherwise that other people wrote that 1983 amendment and that you were not involved in the 2000 election or the redistricting because you're busy with the election. And But I'm still going to ascribe to you uh, uh, influence on all of those redistricting efforts because of the work that you did in 65 well, and I talked later. To people about them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you had some influence. Uh, doesn't wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, in 2010, when you were a commissioner, what role did the caucuses, the caucus leadership play. Obviously, they have their representatives. You're the Senate Republican representative. But I, I seem to remember, you know, hearing from different caucuses that, you know, that they had their their ideas about who they wanted to protect and how they wanted to do things. And that runs up to against the wall of the four commissioners that is tasked with putting together something in a bipartisan way. How did the caucuses try to influence that? Uh, to inform well, your work. I can't tell you about three caucuses. I can only tell you about the one who, uh, that appointed me. If I remember correctly, there's no uh, provision for firing a commissioner in 
starting over again. Hmm. So basically, once each of the caucuses has picked a commissioner, that commissioner is 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 it, and how he or she relates to the caucus that appointed them or to the leader uh, that appointed them uh, is entirely a subjective decision on his part. I sat down at least once at some length with every member of the Republican caucus of the Senate and uh, listened to what they had to say and what they wanted to do. Now, I had an easy task first that's only half as many people as the, as the House of Representatives, the representatives that had to do. But secondly, those Republicans had been so close to a majority for so long, most of them were very objective and said, no, do it, you know, do it right. You know, mm -hmm. Please don't just wipe me out by any means. But I understand that if we're ever to be a majority, uh, we've got to have a lot of very closely divided uh, districts. Not all of them were that way. Some of them wanted a great deal. Not all of them got a great deal by any means. There was one senator who was totally paranoid and was convinced that all the other senators were conspiring uh, to deprive her of her district. So I saw her much more than once. I must have seen her 10 times. <laughs> Each time to say, no, it's going to be done objectively. It's going to be done objectively. Don't worry about it. But that was a relatively small occupier of my time. Yeah. It, it, uh, it took a year, and those relationships with the caucus were not major in, in, in nature. Uh, basically, they trusted me. I can tell you one thing, though. We, to a certain extent, subdivided uh, the job that, uh, that, that we did into two teams of two each, one Republican and one Democrat. And we may put our, each of the groups more or less in charge of coming up with a suggestion for a portion of the state and then put them together and had some ancient debate. And Tim Cease, the former deputy mayor of Seattle, who was sort of my Democratic counterpart, he was the Democratic appointee from the Senate. Yeah. And we fought over single precincts or or small towns or, or the like yeah. but we knew we had to finish the job and 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 we did and then we had to report back to the whole the whole group and get them uh, uh, get them to ratify it but i showed you a map of the congressional districts and the very squiggly line between the first congressional district and the second congressional district that line follows city limits all the way None of the cities north of Seattle is in more than one congressional district. Uh, but uh, city limits lines are squiggly, and so congressional district lines are squiggly as well. You mentioned showing me the map before we started recording. You pulled out the redistricting map from 2012 and talked through, I think, the two counties that were sort of subdivided in eastern Washington. Uh, Walla Walla County. And then over by Wenatchee and East yeah, Wenatchee. East Wenatchee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think it's uh, it's amazing how, you know, we're now recording this in February of 2019. Uh, those maps were mostly put to bed about seven years ago in 2012. It's a good memory of but now Walla remember, Walla. Remember this also for 30 years I represented the whole state. Yeah. I knew those places. <laughs> yeah. 
And you knew you were regarded in the 60s as knowing these maps uh, back when it was harder to know these maps, it I think. It was much harder to know them then. Yeah. Everything uh, done on computer and CAD or whatever these days, right? In the 1960s once was a time at which service stations, gasoline service stations, still gave away free maps of <laughs> states and their areas. Uh-huh. And even there we were different. Um, we used shell maps, Grieve used standard oil maps. Interesting. <laughs> and so how did you, so in the Hughes book, it talks about how you were careful. You didn't, you know, you want to make sure that you protect some Republican districts and the Democrats had to protect some Democratic districts, but that you wanted to maximize as many swing districts as possible to give, you know, as much of a, either Republicans as much of a fighting chance or as much of a voice to the people to be expressive of, uh, have their vote expressed in the legislature. Is that accurate, A? And B, was that the approach in 2010 to try to create as many swing districts as possible? Yes. Uh, Well, to create enough swing districts so that in a good year for your party with good candidates, you could get a majority. Yeah. And that was a harder task for me than it was for the Democrats because this is not a deadly evenly divided state. It's a democratic state. Uh, So it uh, took more work on my part. But I think there's something that really needs to be emphasized here. I think the effect of partisan gerrymandering by odd-shaped districts is overstated. And I apply this to to the country as a whole. For better or worse, the American people have, to a large extent, gerrymandered themselves. When I first ran for attorney general, I ended up winning the state by 25,000 votes. I, excuse me, by 20,000 votes. I carried King County by 25,000 and lost the rest of the state by 20,000. Hmm. Now that's, you know, th- this state is not that state. In any, in any respect whatsoever. And dealing with Tim Cease and, uh, and, and for that matter with Dean Foster, I didn't care where the lines were drawn in the city of Seattle. Yeah. There wasn't, I, I could be the greatest gerrymander in the world and I couldn't create a con, con, even a contestable district there. And to a certain extent, Eastern Washington is the same way for the opposite party. It's just that. People live by like-minded people to a very, very considerable extent. And so even if you work hard to create districts that are, that are um, uh, fairly evenly divided uh, and uh, otherwise logical yeah. ge- geographically, out of 49 districts in this state, you'd be lucky to have 12 of them that are, that, that are contestable every time. Yeah. And that's not... And the fact that we have a lot of one-party districts in this state is not because they're gerrymandered. It's because people live like near people who are like them. Yeah. And is it fair to say, in your experience, that that number of districts is diminishing? And- Certainly. It is. The district I represented in the legislature hasn't had a Republican for 25 or 30 years. Yeah. And that the number of swing districts are, you know, now they're 12 or so and in the future, assuming there was no redistricting, which obviously will happen, but that just self-selection would reduce 12 to 10 or 8 or some... Yes, but I don't think that's an irreversible trend. 
We all tend to think that what's happened in the past is going to be what happens in the future, and that's mm-hmm. never correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this, this, I think, question that you're kind of touching on and that you've touched on throughout your career, I think, is an interesting one, which is it's interesting for the next redistricting effort and f- for this legislature or what, any legislature, which is our current constitution and, and statute uh, and really, I think our politics wants to see some fairness in our um, in our redistricting. Uh, it's built that way with, as you mentioned, with the two Republicans and the two Democratic appointees. Uh, the current language essentially says that there can be no partisan favor or advantage in any of these maps. Um, one way to to address that may be to have a as wide a number of swing districts as is possible, so that there's some. Ability to become the more swing districts you create, the more one party districts you create automatically. The more swing districts you create, create. the more party one party. Sure. Well, it's a zero sum game, right? Yeah. yeah. So how do you? Yeah, what does that look like? I guess I guess my question is, back in the '60s, there were, as you mentioned, in 1962, there were more Republicans that cast ballots in the state than Democrats, but that there were more Democrats. Elected. elected in the legislature. Mm-hmm. And so there was a moral authority there. Yeah. And it, it seems like for the last 10 years, we've had very tight legislative majorities, 50-48, 25-24. Um, but that the Democratic vote continues to go 55, 56, 57. Uh, and so I guess the... Yes, the circumstances that I worked under are really not quite present today because there were more there was more division then mm-hmm. when i started in the legislature uh, it was much more one-sided than it is today the house was 66 democrats and 33 republicans but of those 33 republicans half a dozen of them were from the city of seattle yeah and of those 66 democrats lots of them were from rural parts of uh, you know of, uh, of the state yeah and that's that's what has changed uh once Democrats started to be elected in my old 46th district, they just kept on being elected. Mm-hmm. And once Republicans began to be elected in, say, Okanagan County uh, or something like that, it just then, then, then there were no more, mm-hmm. uh, no more Democrats at all. But while I've said Seattle, of course, is overwhelmingly Democratic, most of eastern Washington is overwhelmingly Republican, those aren't directly balancing factors. In, in Seattle... The Seattle districts are 80 to 85 percent Democratic. Mm -hmm. The Republican districts in eastern Washington are 60 or 65 percent Republican. So totaling up the total number of votes cast for the legislature in the whole in the whole state doesn't present the same set of circumstances today uh, as it did 40 or 50, uh, 40 or 50 years ago. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting questions as I look about look to the future of our state. If we apply those uh, opinions and that perspective uh, from the 60s that I think was relevant and had a moral high ground, I mean, I think you could argue that you would elevate the Democratic number of likely districts from a 50-50 split now to more of a 56-44 split, something reflective of the statewide Democratic vote. On the other hand, that's not going to necessarily 
bring more cohesion to our politics. It no, might bring more division. If you were to say that your philosophy is that every district ought to reflect the state as a whole, uh, you'd have 98 Democrats and zero Republicans in the House and, right. the, and the same in the Senate. Of course, every district shouldn't be the same as the state as a whole. Right. The only way you could do that, I sort of imagine if you would draw every single district a straight east-west line from the Pacific Ocean to the yeah. Idaho line, straight across, you might get much closer even districts, but you wouldn't have districts that were remotely representative of yeah. the people of the state. But if you have 54 55% of the state is Democratic, shouldn't in an average year the members of the legislature, notwithstanding that the Senate has a four-year cycle, but members of the House of Representatives, shouldn't those members be about 54% Democratic? Well, in they a, are. That's the, that's the way the state's been for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, there was an era then ending maybe five, four years ago when Republicans consistently had better candidates than Democrats did in the, in, in the swing districts. And we won, and, and we were, Republicans were more likely to win those swing districts than Democrats were, even when the swing was slightly Democratic, if you looked at, say, the presidential race, yeah. something of uh, that nature. Candidates make a great deal of difference, uh, and uh, you, they, they aren't just automatically uh, interchangeable. And incumbents have an advantage. Yeah. Uh, even the Democratic incumbent in a Republican district, unless the district is way overwhelmingly mm -hmm. one-sided, is going to have an advantage of several percentage points more than the sort of average candidate uh, yeah. in, in that district. And the same thing holds true with the other end as well. It isn't all mathematics by any means, by not the slightest stretch of the imagination. It has to do with candidates. It has to do with the issue with what the issues are, and it has to do with what the immediate mood is. Well, this mood in, in uh, 2018 was President Trump was poison mm -hmm. in, in, in the state. And we Republicans, in some respects, are very lucky that we didn't lose twice as many seats in the State House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. and the reason we didn't was we concentrated very heavily on, on maybe half a dozen or so seats which we pulled out, which we probably shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. But that had to do with the quality of the campaign and the campaign and the, and the quality of the candidate. If you didn't have a decent candidate, it didn't matter how much money you spent. Yeah. One of the things I wrote after the primary was that in my memory and in my research, which is not as extensive as yours, but I have never seen a party, particularly in our top two primary model for the last generation or so, I've never seen a party fall so dramatically from the primary performance to the general election performance. Democrats in the state legislature and the House in particular look like they might pick up, you know, t yes. 10 to 15 seats. We should have, yes, that's right. We should have had 34, 35, not 40. Yeah. And the Republicans turned that around. Yeah. Um, any insight into into that? Is it primarily about long-term candidate recruitment? Was it about maybe some... Well, it was about we knew what the districts were, the ones we should go after, and we just spent all of our efforts on them. Yeah. And where we had good candidates, we won. Yeah. Where we didn't have very good candidates, we lost.
And this, your comments here also speak to the fact that you're very engaged still with the Republican Party, helping to support candidates. And you haven't retired. You're not going off uh, on some cruise in the Bahamas. <laughs> I haven't retired from that, no. No, no. Well, good. Let me ask you just uh, one question about looking back on that 2010 census, the 2012 map. It was at the time, uh, you know, we added a new congressional district, the 10th, down in Olympia. And the uh, the eighth was still meant to be firmly or, or as firmly as could reasonably be Republican. At least that was the conversation from outside the four of your chambers and the redistricting commission. Do you look back and say, you know, I would have liked to have made the first more um, – we envisioned it being more of a swing district than it ended up being, or we envisioned the 8th being more Republican. Well, you, you have made a very good point. My goal in redistricting, a goal that I accomplished, was that the 1st Congressional District should be dead even. Now, fortunately, my definition of dead even and uh, the Democrats were not, were not the same. We did not use the same races to make predictions from. It's very much an art of this state because we don't register by party and because people switch parties from one office to another mm -hmm. uh, just uh, magnificently. But that district ended up in the set of statewide races that we used being just over one half of 1% Democratic by my standards and just the same amount Republican by the Democrat standards. <laughs> so that sort of made it even. Then when we totaled up the votes in the previous election for Congress, several for several different congressmen, mm -hmm. 275,000 votes were, were, were cast there. And I think 117 was the difference between the two parties. It was nothing. Wow. It was a perfect dead-even district. But the Democratic candidate was an attractive woman with an unlimited amount of money, scared out the best Republican possible candidates, and has held the seat ever since, and will continue to hold it, mm -hmm. you know, as as long as we don't have someone equally attractive with, with maybe more money, yeah, uh, you know, in it. So, I created I created a a, a contestable district. It remains a contestable district, but not when one candidate's got all the cards. Yeah, and, and we made the eighth district a little bit more Republican. And the 8th District may go back again. The 8th, the 8th District may be, more, more, may be more swing than the first. Probably will be for the first, at least, the first couple of elections that, after the switch in parties. Yeah. There had been a longstanding tradition that the 8th was the most Republican district, on the, at least on the west side of the state. Jennifer Dunn was the first to hold that seat for a number of years, That's I recall. Right. Now the only... Uh, Western Washington Republican who we have is in Vancouver. Yeah, Jamie Herrera Butler. Um, any, any. She's the only Republican, I think, congressional district that touches the Pacific Ocean. I believe that's right. Yeah, I believe that's right. Particularly after Orange County went all, yeah. you know, all all blue in California. Uh, closing sort of thoughts on the uh, the fifth congressional race this last year, and any demographic changes you see in in that race. No, you know, that race didn't end up as close as it was supposed to end up. Kathy McMorris Rogers did a very good job. There was, I think, more money was spent against her than for her. Uh, but uh, 
what that result showed to me is the Democrats can't win the district. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that used to be a, a lock-solid well, Tom it was, Foley district. It was lock-solid Tom Foley, but it was always Republican. He was a perfect <laughs> example of someone who was a very good member of Congress who for a long time kept up with his constituents very well. Yeah, And he kept winning, even though the legislators from that congressional district were almost all Republicans. Yeah. Senator Slade Gordon, I really appreciate you making all of this time to chat with us. Thank you for talking through the, the details and the history of redistricting. Appreciate it, sir. Okay. I want to extend another thanks and our gratitude from the team here at The Wire to U.S. Senator Slade Gordon. That was really a joy to sit down with him. We're going to be doing more with him in the months ahead. This starts us off. In the future, we're going to talk about 9-11. We're going to talk about his 1980 race against Warren Magnuson. And we're going to have another set of conversations with Senator Gordon. We're excited to bring those to you here at The Wire. This podcast was produced by Emily Berger and myself with help from folks like Laura Lundberg, Rita Waldrop, Karana Wilson, Margie High, Sarah Gensler, and others. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, of course, at iTunes, and we'd love to have you say a few kind words if you like what you hear. And if you don't like what you hear, well, then don't say anything. Till next time, appreciate you listening. Thanks, everyone.